please open your Bibles to Genesis 32. Today we're going to cover Genesis 32 and 33. So we have a lot of ground to make our way through this morning. But before we dive in, it's important to remember what we've learned in this series so far. And we always want to first keep in mind the main point of Genesis, which is to show how God makes and keeps his promise to send the serpent crusher, the Messiah. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God created everything, and it was good. Then in Genesis 3, we see how sin entered creation. Adam and Eve rejected God's good plan, and they trust the deception of the serpent instead, that eating the fruit will bring them more joy than obeying God. This brings terrible consequences, as the world is cursed and they're cast out of the garden. However, before they're cast out of the garden, God makes a beautiful promise. He promises to send an offspring from Eve that will crush the serpent's head and reconcile man to God. Then as we move through Genesis 4 through 11, we're waiting for this serpent crusher. You can almost feel the anticipation as you read through those chapters. But what we see Instead, is sin spreading throughout the world to the point that by the time we get to Genesis 11, there's no depiction of anyone righteous. And we're left to wonder, how will God keep his promise? But then when we get to Genesis 12, it opens up with God calling Abraham and promising that in his offspring, Men and women from every nation would be blessed and reconciled to God. In that chapter, we also see that God tells Abraham that he is righteous because of his faith. Genesis 12 through 20, 36, which is where we've been moving through, is, shows how God repeats and secures his promise of salvation through the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We've been looking at the lives of Isaac and Jacob, and we've seen that it just shows over and over. I love how Pastor Steve says it, like God is like a bulldozer. How does he do? You know, barreling through obstacle after obstacle. If you read through Genesis, you're, you, you read the stories, and I think it's meant to tell us, to make us think, can God keep his promise? But over and over we see, yes, he keeps it, he keeps it. He keeps it. Then over the past few weeks, we've landed in the life of Jacob, who we have to admit is an unlikely benefactor of God's promise. In Genesis 27, 1 through 46, Jacob lied to his father to get the blessing. In Genesis 28, 1 through 22, God appears to Jacob and he worships God, yet Immediately after, in Genesis 29, 1 through 30, Jacob is back to his old ways, and he finds his wife in his own power. Then in Genesis 29, 31 through 30, 24, we see the devastation that Jacob finding his wife in his own power causes on his family life. But we also see 
that God fulfilled one of his promises to Abraham to make him a great nation. And last week, as we looked at Genesis 31, we saw how God overcame Jacob's impossible problems. He provided for Jacob abundantly, kept Jacob from harm, and he sends him back to his family. And that brings us to Genesis 32 through 33. Now there's two ways that commentators typically look at this passage, and I want to mention both of them and then convince you of the one I think is, is, is what Moses is telling us. The first is that, that some commentators believe this is a story of Jacob's resilience and faith. And so they point to Jacob in the way that he walks through this and say that, that it's evidence that he was striving for faith. I think there's some warrant to that. But I agree with the other commentators that say that this is the moment where God teaches Jacob faith. And I think we're going to see that as we really see this scene unfold. Jacob still has something to learn And what I want to suggest is that God does something greater than he's done before by teaching Jacob the essence of faith. Notice how Genesis 23 starts in verses, 32 starts in verses 1 and 2. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And Jacob saw them and said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. This mirrors Genesis 28, is it not? God instigates the encounter. Jacob sees the angels of God, and he recognizes God is there and gives the place a name. By Mahanaim, which means two camps, Jacob may mean two camps of angels surrounding him, one in his front and one in his back, Some commentators suggest that. Or he could mean that it's his camp and the angels. Either way, we see the point being made. As he is heading home, the Lord meets him again, similar to how he did in Genesis 28, to remind him that God was with him and God will be with him. This beautifully sets our focus to be primarily on God. So with our focus set there, let's continue in Genesis 32, 3 through 20, where we see Jacob's fear displayed. Here is where the problem begins to open up to us. Notice how the story begins in verses 3 through 5. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. You see, Jacob recognizes that going home means he needs to meet Esau. I think he sees that he needs to make amends and face his past mistakes. So he sends messengers to seek Esau's favor. Notice what happens next in verses 6 through 7. 
And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. So the messengers return with a dreadful depiction of Esau coming to meet Jacob. And Jacob becomes greatly afraid and distressed. Now, pay attention to the language Moses uses to describe what Jacob does next. Verses 7 and 8. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Do you see what's going on there? The term used at the end of verse 7 for two camps is the root of the name mentioned in verse 2. I think Moses is showing us how Jacob's focus is starting to move off of the Lord. And he is beginning to operate in his own cleverness. If Esau comes and sees one camp, there'll be enough chance for that other camp to escape. See how quickly his eyes lost sight of the angels? I think we can really sympathize and empathize with that struggle, can't we? Fear often clouds our vision of God. Next, Moses opens up to us Jacob's struggle. Look at verses 9 through 12. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Now this prayer really is beautiful. It proclaims God's promise, displays humble thanksgiving, and requests deliverance. We could spend time analyzing this prayer and really learn about a lot about how we should pray to the Lord. But what I want us to notice is what happens immediately after. For as George Mueller, the great man of prayer, said, the most important part of prayer is the 15 minutes after saying amen. And as we continue, we see the struggle in verses 13 through 20. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me, 
and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who follow the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with, my pre- with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. You see, this is where I think we get the first clues from Moses that Jacob is not acting fully in faith. Now let's be clear, there's nothing inherently wrong with the plan that Jacob creates to send his brother a present. And there's a balance between working and waiting. But I want us to notice how this reveals that Jacob is ultimately operating in his own power and not trusting the Lord. First, notice the extravagance of the gift. It is suggested that the amounts and the structure of this gift would have been akin to giving a gift to a king. Next, notice the way he sends the gift to be presented. Methodically, attempting to appease Esau's anger by gift after gift after gift. Maybe by the fifth one, Esau will not be angry anymore. But finally, and most importantly, notice the thought that Moses relays to us of Jacob in verse 20. For he thought, I may appease him. Do you see it? Jacob's hope is in his effort to appease Esau. No mention of God. Faith appears far away at this moment. And I think it's worth noting that his plan doesn't give him very much confidence, does it? He says, I may and perhaps. We see the uncertainty of relying on our own strength. We're not even confident in it. And so I think Jacob is wavering back and forth between operating in his own clever nature and trusting God's promises. Yes, he prayed a beautiful prayer. But he immediately followed it with his own power to control the situation. Now, in order to see Moses' main point, let's move to chapter 33, and we'll come back to the end of chapter 32, because I want you to see this. Here, in verses 1 through 3, we see Jacob's confidence displayed. Pay attention to verses 1 through 3. And Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming with 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now, did you pick up the similarities between these three verses and the verses we just read in Genesis 32? 
In Genesis 32, 6, Jacob's messengers report that Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men. In 33, 1a, Jacob looks up and he sees Esau coming to meet him with 400 men. In Genesis 37, 32, 7b and 16, Jacob divides the people and the droves into groups to be seen in a particular order by Esau. Then in Genesis 33, 1b and 2, Jacob divides his family into groups to be seen in a particular order. Now, as we've seen in Moses' writings, the similarities are often there to point to the differences. So now notice the differences. In Genesis 32, 8, 13, and 16 through 20, Jacob sends one camp and the droves ahead of him. In Genesis 33a, Jacob goes before them. In 3220b, Jacob's hope is in the present to appease Esau. In 33.3b, Jacob bows seven times, showing that his hope is in the Lord to appease Esau. So you see, these comparisons are showing that Jacob is a changed man from Genesis 32.20 to Genesis 33.3. And this reveals that the main point of this story is how Jacob is changed. What changed his fear to confidence? What changed him being behind everybody to him going forward? And we find our answer back in Genesis 32, verses 21 through 32. As we are met with an encounter that is not only the crux of this story, but it's the crux of Israel's history. Look at verse 21. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone." And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. This is such a beautiful story of God meeting Jacob. I love how one pastor put it. He said, this passage reveals God's intrusive grace. 
Because I think that's what we see. We see God's grace pouring out from these verses. First, notice verse 24. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, it's important to note here, Jacob did not initiate this wrestling match. He was alone. The man comes to him and begins to wrestle with him. So immediately we see God's grace meets Jacob. Second, notice the display of power in verse 25b. He touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Just imagine this scene. An entire night of wrestling and no one prevailing, back and forth. Then in a moment, your hip is touched and you're completely helpless. You see, I think a good illustration of this is one of a father wrestling a young child. The father is in complete control. He exerts the perfect amount of strength and leniency to make it seem like a struggle until the end of the match is near. And then he ends the match, showing all along that the child was no match. At the right moment, he touched Jacob's hip to end the match. You see, God's grace showed Jacob his strength. Third, notice where he touches Jacob and Jacob's response to it. Albert Barnes comments, the thigh is the pillar of man's strength. It is the joint with the hip, the seed of physical force for the wrestler. Let the thigh bone be thrown out of joint and the man is utterly disabled. You see, while Jacob self-confidently wrestles with his unknown assailant, he is shown in the blink of an eye that he is utterly helpless. Then, as he recognizes the power of the one he's been wrestling with, he realizes his need. So when the man asks for Jacob to let him go, Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The prophet Hosea describes this moment in Hosea 12.4, saying that Jacob wept and sought God's favor. You see, here Jacob discovers his utter dependence on God, and he moves from wrestling to truly praying in faith. God's grace made Jacob weak. Fourth, Notice how God changes Jacob's character. A person's name throughout Scripture denotes the character of that person. So when God asks Jacob his name, he rightly responds that his name is supplanter. And God, in his grace, changes Jacob's character and his name to prove it. He will now be called Israel, which means he strives with God or God strives, God's grace 
changes Jacob. Finally, in this section, notice how God's grace leaves a lasting mark. I love verse 31. It says, The sun rose, and Jacob left limping because of his hip. There is a lasting mark on this night in Jacob's life. He will never forget it. And then verse 32 beautifully shows that Jacob established a practice to remind his children of their dependence on God. See, God's grace leaves a lasting mark on Jacob. So then the question becomes, what do we do with verse 28? What is Moses telling us in verse 28? Let me read it again for us. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Commentators are somewhat split on this. A.W. Pink and others suggest that because Israel should probably be taken to mean God strives, because the form of Israel typically means God is the one doing things. They suggest that we should render this more of a reproach. Have you struggled with God and with men and prevailed? Others say it's a positive rendering, much like we have in the ESV. I kind of think either one fits. I'm not really sure where I stand, so study on your own. We can see what the reproach would mean, right? Teaching them that God is the one who strives. God is the one who commands, as some would suggest. But what if we take the positive rendering? What do we make of that? Well, vital to our understanding, then, is determining how Jacob prevailed. Was it through his wrestling? No. Clearly. Was it through his cleverness? No. Precisely at what moment do we see Jacob prevailing? The moment he cries out to God and seeks his favor. So do you see what may have prevailed? Faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith, It is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Either way, we render verse 28 as a reproach or as a positive. We see that it's God who teaches Jacob that he is helpless and completely dependent on the grace of God. And that, church, is the essence of faith. And it points us directly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus came and met us in our weakness. The glorious, powerful one took on our sinful nature, our weak nature, and through his atoning work on the cross, through his blood shed for us, God's grace is lavished upon us now. You see, we're helpless on our own, but we can cling to Christ 
and we can cry out for the favor of God. I think like Jacob, we need to see our weakness. We need to give up striving in our own power. The only hope that we have is faith in Christ alone. One of my favorite hymns, titled Rock of Ages, captures how our relationship with Christ correlates to this point in Jacob's life. Listen to its third stanza. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. You see, we need God's grace poured out through Jesus Christ because we are helpless and weak. And we never stop needing that grace. That is the point of this passage. The essence of faith is dependence on the grace of God. God in his grace met Jacob and changed Jacob. So Jacob went before his family when he saw Esau. God taught Jacob the essence of faith. Now finally, let's go back to chapter 23. And let's look at the beautiful way this story ends. As we see God's reconciling power in Jacob's worship. After showing that Jacob was changed, Moses leaves us with a sweet taste of the glory of God. And we see it first in the reconciling power of God's grace in Genesis 33, 4 through 17. Listen to this story and picture the scene. Esau is coming with 400 men. Verse 4, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, and fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. What a beautiful scene. And when Esau lifted his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants draw near, they and their children, and bowed down. Likewise, Leah and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. And Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present From my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail. And that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave you with some of my people who are with me. 
But Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sokoth, which means hut or house. This is such a beautiful example of God's reconciling power. Notice just a couple of points. In verse 4, Esau runs to Jacob and meets him with a kiss. You see, not only is his anger appeased, but he expresses love. Some suggest that this is where Jesus borrowed the prodigal son and the father meeting the son as he's on the road. And if it wasn't clear that God accomplished this, Moses records Esau asking, why did you send all that company ahead of you and that he has enough? Do you see God's power? Do you see God's reconciling power? Esau has completely changed. Next, in verses 10 through 16, Notice that Jacob is no longer fighting for possessions or fearful of safety because he trusts that God is completely for him. When Jacob insists that Esau accepts his present, he says, For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. What he means by this is that by seeing Esau's favor, he knows God moved in and through Esau. He sees God's hand in the situation and he trusts that God is for him. Notice also how three times Esau shows kindness, but Jacob refuses. In verse 10, he insists on Esau keeping the present that he could have accepted back. Doesn't sound like the Jacob we saw in Genesis 27. In verse 12, he humbly denies Esau's offer for protection. Doesn't sound like the Jacob we saw at the beginning of Genesis 32. In verse 15, he kindly refuses Esau's offer to help him get settled. You see, Esau moves in kindness towards his brother. Jacob graciously refuses, though, because he's at peace with God's sovereign care. And God powerfully reconciles Jacob and Esau. Just as a side note here, if there's someone that you're unreconciled with, does this not show that God can mend that? Trust him. Move forward in that. Seek that person out. And see if God does not reconcile you fully. Finally, we end with Moses showing Jacob's worship. In verses 18 through 20. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paran Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamer, Shechem's father, He bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe 
Israel. Jacob comes safely to the land of promise. And he erects an altar. And he calls it the mighty one. The God of Israel. God brought Jacob all the way home. Just like he promised. And therefore Jacob worships. Can you hear the echoes of Jacob's vow in Genesis 28? The Lord was with him. The Lord kept him. Therefore, the Lord is the God of Israel. As we conclude, I see two simple points of application for us. The first is for those who may be here that do not know the love of God through Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 7 says, For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Striving to live your life in your own power will never bring you peace and joy. It will never reconcile you to God. The word of God declares that we are weak and without hope, like Jacob when his hip was thrown out. But God in his grace and mercy provides a way to be made right with him. So confess your weakness. Cry out to Christ for forgiveness and trust in his work on the cross. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who's made a way for you to be at peace with him, will pour out his grace upon you time and time again. The second application is for for those of us who do believe and trust in Christ. I think it's the trust fully in the grace of God. Are you wavering between faith and striving in your own power like Jacob? Maybe you see yourself in Jacob like I do many times. At some moments accepting God's grace other moments thanking him for it, even praying for more of it. Yet like Jacob, you often move forward in your own strength. One way God is meeting you this morning with his intrusive grace is through this passage. Showing you that we need his grace in every moment of our lives. Let me ask you, do you carry a mark of grace? Larry Richards says, sometimes a wound is is a very special act of God's grace. How often we need to be wounded because it is easy for us to trust in our own skills and abilities. Do you need to realize the beauty of your weakness and move from wrestling to prayer? Maybe you have been dealing with your problems like Jacob, One moment praying for God's help and the next striving in your own power. Last week we saw how God promises to deliver us from every affliction. Let me ask you, are you depending on God's grace to deliver you or working in your own power to deliver yourself? Are you trusting that if God doesn't remove your affliction or hasn't yet, that he will give you greater joy and peace in him through it? 
are you trying to walk through it in your own power? Are you trusting that there is a day in the future when everything will be made new? When every right will be wronged? When sin and death will be put away and only joy everlasting? Or are you hoping only in this life? You see, lean into his word and trust in his grace. John Piper calls it faith and future grace. Meaning we trust that there is grace for tomorrow. We trust that there is grace for this afternoon. We trust that there is grace for next year. We trust that that grace will lead us all the way to the presence of God forever, full of joy, full of satisfaction. Lean into his word and trust in his grace. See it change you. See the power of God working for you and holding you fast through all of life. Find out like Jacob did that his grace will sustain you and keep you and that he will pour out good upon you. As the worship team is coming up, would you please stand with me and let me pray this word over us this morning. Father in heaven, I confess first my weakness. I confess that it is easier to stand here and say that we need to trust your grace at times than it is for me myself to trust and rely on your grace. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. God, I pray that you would cause hearts here to be opened to their weakness and their need for your grace. And that you would show them that you are steadfast in love, that you are ever faithful, that you will hold them, that you will keep them, that you will give them power, that you will give them victory. God, reveal yourself to them in your grace. For those who are your children, help them to learn to trust in you. For those who have yet to see the glory of Jesus Christ, remove the veil from their eyes. Give them a taste of your power and the way you did to Jacob when you touched his hip. Touch their hearts. Show them the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.